Welcome to Game Plan, a show about our lives at work. I'm Rebecca Greenfield, a reporter for Bloomberg, where I cover workplace culture. And I'm Francesca Levy, editor of the Game Plan section at Bloomberg.com. Today we're talking career paths. Later, we'll talk to Mary Norris, also known as the Comma Queen. Mary's a copy editor at The New Yorker with a cult following. She'll tell us about her unlikely path to The New Yorker and the places her job has taken her since. But first, let's talk about the state of the career path today. So this idea of getting a job straight out of college and staying with the same company until you get a gold watch and cash in that pension. Nobody does that anymore. No, not real. So over. I don't know anybody doing that. I don't even know what a gold watch looks like. What's a watch? (laughs) (laughs) I just use my phone to tell the time. So yeah, millennials, young people, they're not doing this at all. That's the received wisdom. That's what we read ad nauseum is that millennials are not catching up to previous generations in terms of how fast they're getting their careers on track. But we're going to kind of interrogate that a little bit, I think, because I feel like that's rooted in some misconceptions. Yeah. So it's really easy to just think of the Lena Dunham character on Girls who is entitled and does what they want and doesn't want to follow this notion of kind of getting on track. But I think in reality, for a lot of young people, it It's not something that's as much in their control as we would like to think. Right. It's not necessarily a trait of millennials' personalities that's making them make the choices that they make. There are a lot of external factors, like the difficulty in buying a home, being saddled with student debt. Yeah, student debt is, I think, one of the biggest issues young people face. Just unprecedented, did not exist before, and I think that changes the way you think about your career. It's definitely a reason people live at home. I've interviewed people just out of school who have decent jobs and are just saving the rent money because that rent money can go straight back to their student debt payment. Right. And the idea that millennials have no company loyalty and don't sort of lock themselves into a career early and then work their way up in a company is a little more complicated than it seems at first, too, right? Like, this isn't strictly a millennial thing. No, young people hop around. They've always hopped around. I found a pretty interesting number from a Times article about 10 years ago that said boomers had 10 and a half jobs. Between baby boomers. Baby boomers between the ages 18 and 40. Young people wow. are just figuring out what they want to do. Right. So we're also not... jumping around from a job is the best way to make more money. Annual raises, especially now, just don't cut it. You have to get a promotion or move up. Right. So like lever- out. finding a new job is the best way to cement salary increases, and so it's actually it can be a smart career choice. And what you're saying is that people have always operated this way when they're young. They've moved from job to job. It's not some sudden shift in the way young people think about the value of work. The other thing that has changed is the sort of implied social contract between businesses and their employees. So there was a really interesting story on NPR's Marketplace about the rise of the idea of shareholder value and the economist Milton Friedman's ideas that companies should think more about profits than either doing good in the world or doing right by the people that work for them. And what it led to was a huge soaring stock market in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, Yeah, (laughs) as companies trimmed their expenses and restructured and became a little bit more ruthless about providing value to shareholders and meeting analyst estimates every quarter. But it also led to things like the demise of pension plans and the 
sort of withering away of employee benefits and the kind of general sense that that you had job security if you went to a company and did a good job and worked your way up through the ranks. So it's almost like companies started this, like they were the ones that changed the deal. And it feels a little unfair to blame millennials or young people for not keeping up their end of the bargain by being loyal to companies. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I really think that I, I, I don't get the idea of being loyal to your company at all. I think that yeah. people should work hard and should do the jobs that they're hired for and should try not to screw people over. But we're almost brainwashed into this idea that you're doing something wrong if you act in your own interests by taking another job that pays better and gives you better opportunities. Whereas, like, who said your company can't fire you anytime they want for almost anything? Yeah, companies have shifted to this buzzy word of culture. So like right. if you have these relationships with your coworkers and you feel a sense of belonging, like that's a reason to stick around, which is a pretty lousy replacement for financial security when you're old. Right. And coincidentally, it's a lot cheaper for companies to instill a sense of corporate yes. culture than it is to invest in your retirement income. Right. And and we've seen the rise of empty-ish perks as a way to keep and attract employees which I guess they work in a sense, but obviously not that well because people are jumping around. We've been talking about sort of the difference between finding a career path and settling into it early and then just kind of doggedly working your way up the ladder and sort of floating around aimlessly like a typical millennial and just making decisions based on your whims or what, what sparks your soul. And it might be a good time to talk about our guest's career path. So our guest has had the following jobs. She was a key girl at a public pool. She was a cashier at a costume shop. She drove a milk truck for a dairy farm. She was a cheese factory worker, dishwasher, and worked the register at a department store. So she had a lot of jobs before now being a copy editor. What a classic aimless millennial. Actually, Mary Norris has been with The New Yorker since 1978. She's not only a copy editor, but she's something of a grammar celebrity. She wrote a bestseller, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, and hosts the popular web series, also called Comma Queen, where each week she dives into our favorite grammar questions. We're going to start out by addressing the all-important question of the serial comma. The serial comma, also known as the Oxford comma, is the comma before and in a series of three or more. There's a famous one. We invited the strippers, JFK and Stalin, if it were. We invited the strippers, comma, JFK, comma, and Stalin. Then you wouldn't mistake JFK and Stalin for strippers. So if you don't want to use the serial comma, save it for some time when it really means something, when it really makes a difference. Okay? Mary, thanks so much for coming on our show today. Pleasure to be here. So before you got to The New Yorker, where you've been for some time, we talked about some of your early jobs. Why don't you tell us about some of those and your experience before settling in? Well, my very first job ever was checking feet at a public pool in Cleveland. We had this tradition in Cleveland, and I think a lot of Great Lakes cities did have it 
where you had to use this bench and um, put one foot at a time up on this foot-shaped platform and use your fingers to spread out your toes. And what you were doing, what I was doing, was making sure no one got into the pool who had athlete's foot. We were trying to stem the spread of athlete's foot in the city of Cleveland. (laughs) This doesn't sound like a job that you were led to by your passion for stemming athlete's foot uh, (laughs) Your passion for feet. I did not have a foot fetish. (laughs) It was not what you'd call a career move, right? I was 15 and a half, and I just wanted some spending money. You know, a teenager wants that. So that was my very first job, and I always wanted to have a little financial independence. And so I took what jobs I could get as a teenager. I worked in a discount store in Cleveland, marking clothing. My first job when I got out of college was in a costume company in Cleveland. Then I got a job driving a milk truck, and that was the best job I've ever had. What was so great about it? Well, I liked cows. And any job that had to do with cows, even remotely. But I did believe in, in milk and cottage cheese. And what did so you like you. about cows? Um, they're so placid and contented and productive. You know, they gave milk. <laughs> you have written about all of these different jobs that you've taken that seem largely unconnected. But it sort of seems like you've made a lot of decisions that were driven by Um, wanting financial independence or just needing a job and then been able to kind of find the meaning in the job once you got there. Was that, is that accurate? Well, I knew that I was looking for experience too. Yes. I wanted to be a writer from the very beginning. Um, After those couple of jobs in Cleveland, I went back to graduate school at the University of Vermont. There again, I was following the cows (laughs) and I got an MA in English literature there, English and American literature. And I learned to milk university cows, and my first job after that was in a mozzarella plant, a cheese factory where we packaged mozzarella. And I remember I had wanted to write fiction as a graduate student. I thought I could do a master's thesis that was a collection of stories, but they wouldn't let me do that. And they even said I didn't have enough experience to be writing fiction. And then the funny thing was that one of the professors I'd had, after I got the job in the cheese factory, said, well, now you'll have some experience. (laughs) (laughs) So the themes so far running through your career, cows, dairy, and writing. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's about right. But then you moved to New York, a place that has a notable lack of cows. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you tell us about that decision and and where that took your career? At the time, I had a sibling living in New York who had become friends with a woman who was in his um, portraiture class. And it turned out that she, her name was Jeanne Fleshman. It turned out she was married to Peter Fleshman, who was the chairman of the board of the New Yorker. He was the son of Raoul Fleshman, one of the original founders. And I got to know them. And I started to think, well, maybe I could live in New York. Indeed, my sibling did suggest she was going to Paris. She had a wonderful career herself as a musician. Her big job was that she played the harp in a bear costume. I guess costumes were a family thing. (laughs) And and mammals, costumes and mammals. Well, she had this nice gig playing the harp in a bear suit outside one of the gates of Central Park. And she she told me, well, you could probably get some kind of job in publishing. So I came to New York. Peter Fleshman was a wonderful friend to me. He was on the business side 
of course, and in those days, business and editorial did not mix. So he actually could not get me a job at The New Yorker, but he could call the executive editor and say I was going to call and would like to talk to him. So Peter arranged that. Yeah, that seems like a pretty big thing, a connection. People talk about that now, how important that is to getting jobs. So I guess things haven't changed that much. But so then you eventually do get a job at The New Yorker, obviously. Yes. There was no opening that first time I talked to this editor, but I called back. I'd been washing dishes in Patterson. I'd done statistical typing as a temp, and I'd been a temporary cashier at a discount store, EJ Corvettes. You probably don't remember that. It was a long time ago. And I was going to try to get a hack license and drive a cab. I still had my chauffeur's license from having driven the milk truck, so I thought that would be a natural. But in fact, I did not know my way around in New York, and it would have been a total disaster if I had tried to drive a cab. So Peter said, why don't you call them back and see if there are any openings? And there were. There was an opening in the typing pool and one in what is called the editorial library. I failed the test for the typing pool. There was an electric typewriter, and you know I'd only had a manual up to that point, and that was my excuse anyway, that the typewriter just kind of took off without me. But in the editorial library, it was a little more primitive. They had manual typewriters, and we typed summaries of stories, even poems and nonfiction pieces, typed the summaries on index cards and indexed every piece you know, by author, by subject. Every person who was mentioned in the piece would go into the file because those people might want to know where what piece they were in someday, and they'd call up and ask. The cartoons were all indexed, you know, cartoon about a bird. Somebody might remember that they'd seen a cartoon about a bird that laid a square egg, and they <laughs> wanted a copy of that issue. So they could call, and we had the an index where we could find that under birds. So you eventually ended up, you finished the training. Yes, um, I did that for a little while, and then I learned another job called collating. And we had this proofreader, a grammarian who was legendary, named Eleanor Gould, and she read everything in galley, not the fiction, but everything else. You had to move her changes onto a clean proof, and there were loads of them. And I came to understand, or at least I came to study, what she would do And I began to internalize all that stuff, and I learned it by osmosis. So when there was an opening then on the copy desk, that's when I finally got to work on copy myself, when manuscripts would come through, and, you know, I'd get to read John Updike and John McPhee and Pauline Kael and wonderful stuff, Harold Brodke, I remember. And I would get to see what the editors did, and after many, many years of that, I moved on to become a query proofreader myself, the sort of thing that Eleanor Gould did. And did you have a moment where you knew you'd found your thing, where you were in your element and you sort of expected you'd stay there for a long time? Or did you never really think that way about your career? Well, as soon as I got any job, as soon as I got the foot in the door at The New Yorker, I felt like this, well, this is probably it. I'm certainly not going to find a magazine that's better than this to work at. And I I wanted to be a writer, but ever since I was a kid, I've known, you know, I came from a working class family and I knew that, that I needed to, a paycheck and I had no f- rich 
father to ask for money except once in a while. <laughs> and and you are a writer. You've written a book, Confessions of the yes, Queen. Yes, yes. This is wonderful. But, you know, even once you've had a book, even once you've had a book on the bestseller list, and between you and me was on the bestseller list for five weeks, not that I was counting, <laughs> you still need a day job. It surprised me. Yeah. I, but in a way, you fulfilled that prophecy of your teacher where you all of your experience led to the material for you to write the book, which is called Between You and Me, Confessions of a Common Queen, right? I should say the whole title. I did not expect to get a book out of my day job. And you have a lot to say about commas. Surprisingly, I do. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of surprised myself. So in addition to having published a book, now you also have this web series, Comma Queen, which has a cult following, including fans like me and Francesca. Was that unexpected? And how do you feel about your new role? Well, that's something that I agreed to do in order to help publicize the book. I was not really eager to make videos. It was not my idea. But The New Yorker and Condé Nast in general wanted to have more of an online presence. Doing videos was the hip thing to do, and I, I agreed to do it. And that, again, surprised me that people were really interested in that stuff. You know, we think copy editors lead very quiet, retiring lives, you know. To be a celebrity copy editor is to be an oxymoron <laughs> if there ever was one. So that has changed things around the office a bit. Some of the writers have gotten a little wary of me because they're afraid I'm going to use one of their sentences as an oh, example. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. It was really great having you. Oh, it was fun talking. Thank you for having me. So what did we learn about career paths from talking to Mary, who was successful, but in a way that she never imagined. Well, first of all, I learned that Mary is a delight. Oh, yeah. She's so, so great. Loved her. So here's somebody with this really specific career path. Like nobody else. She didn't follow in anyone's footsteps. No one else has had exactly the same sequence of and jobs no one that was, Mary has was like, had. I really want to be a dairy farmer or maybe a copy editor. <laughs> and, and, and a scholar of James Thurber in between. Yeah, I think there are kind of two lessons from that. One is is to understand that everything you're doing could give you some sort of skill for something later that you don't know you'll even need it for. Like, I mean, her big example was saying that she had a lot to say about commas, like right. decades worth of stuff to say about commas that so many people cared about that now she is a comma celebrity. Right. And she's a published writer, which ironically, in a way, is the thing she always wanted to be like she was trying to get published and trying to find the subject matter that was that was perfect for her all throughout her career and in the end it ended up being her day job so the day job wasn't this irrelevant side act in her life it was the thing that got her to her final goal yeah I, I do wonder if at the time at times she was more frustrated than she is now it's easy to look back and say like, oh, all those all those copy editing times paid off. But it's nice to be able to see that perspective from somebody and to know that like your own frustrations with not achieving the things you're trying to achieve in the moment might look very different when you're looking back on it all. And I mean, I've certainly, I, I had a total change in careers. I became a journalist only after spending about five or six years after college pursuing being a researcher. And that feels like a very different career path. And going to journalism school and then starting as a journalist 
felt a lot like starting over and kind of resetting. And it certainly was that from a salary perspective. And it was that from the perspective of being like a few years older than everybody that I worked with. But I realize now how much about kind of studying anthropology and being a researcher is completely relevant to journalism. Yeah, totally. And thinking about research and how to interpret it, knowing how to interview people and basically write about what they say, which is what both researchers and journalists do. You know, I wasn't ever acquiring those skills in the interest of becoming a journalist, but I certainly use skills. I even use skills that I used when I was an acting student. Yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I act really interested in some conversations. And on that note, let's take it to Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes is where we have uh, opinions about things that aren't aren't quite fully formed enough for anything besides us talking about it right here, right now. So, Francesca, tell me your Half-Baked Take. Okay. This week's Half-Baked Take is about one of the most insidious and misused phrases in the English language, possibly, and that's no worries. You're using no worries wrong, probably, or you know someone who has. Yeah, I think it's not only an annoying phrase, but I ever since you pointed this out to me, people are also using it wrong. It's both... It's annoying even when you use it right. So no worries is like... I think it's like an Australian-originated uh, idiom... That's just like, whatever, don't worry about it. No problem. No big thing. And it's it seems really useful in conversation, but one of the most passive aggressive things that people can do is use it. it. Basically, you're like forgiving somebody when you say no worries. So there's a lot of ways you can use it that turn out to be really kind of uncool and rude. So I sat across from somebody at a desk who had restless leg syndrome and I assume I don't know if he was officially diagnosed but that's I'm gonna go ahead and diagnose him with that he was very fidgety and he would just thrash his legs around under the desk and they would kick mine and I was bruised in the shins by the end of the day and so after putting up with it silently or kind of grumpily by sighing loudly for a month or two I finally went up to him and I was like I don't know if you know this but you're kicking me under the desk when you move your feet around and it's it's just if you could just watch it and he goes oh no worries <laughs> and I was like yeah what does- no I'm not worried <laughs> you should be worried like no, you're like yes worries you, you, yeah worry <laughs> the correct thing to say is I'm so sorry I didn't realize I'll stop doing wow that. yeah and and people use it like this really a lot they really yeah. they really do it's become a tick so if you ever want to be really passive aggressive and somebody tries to call you out for something that you don't think you should be called out for just respond to them with no worries and it will enrage them to the point of having to say something about it on a podcast becca (laughs) what is your half-baked take my half-baked take is that i love my sad desk salad i think there's this whole movement against the sad desk salad i think there are some books written about sad desk salad i think there was a tumblr or a blog right i think tumblr to book deal happened so (laughs) a sad desk salad is what it sounds like it's it's the epitome of cubicle life it's just staring glumly at your screen while you shove a a healthy wilted green gross meal into your mouth while you like pretend to do work or scroll through the internet I understand the symbolism and why it seems horrible, but I make a really good salad at home. It's really easy to do. You just buy like two or three kind of fun ingredients, like edamame. 
Okay. Or Very fun. beets or hearts of palm. It's so easy. I buy tofu. Do you make it in the morning? I make it in the morning. I put it in a Tupperware and it's delightful and lovely and healthy. And you know what? I really like it. And stop shaming me. So you look forward to the moment in your day where you get your sad disc salad. Yeah. But this is my question. The salad sounds great. Thank you. But wouldn't it be better if it were not in a Tupperware, but on a nice ceramic plate and not at your desk, but at a picnic table or an outdoor yes, al fresco dining environment. Exactly. Everyone's eating so at their desk. So they're having, nobody That's says. That's the sad thing is no that saying, nobody leaves and sits somewhere nice and eats. So, But we don't call it sad desk burrito because like we're, it's oh, cool to eat like a burrito. For because, the salad part. Yeah. It's a happy desk salad. <laughs> so I think that that, so the implication of the, of the sad desk salad is that you're not only a workaholic who can't leave their desk and who has no more joy in their life, but you've also eliminated the, the fun calorie filled foods that you yes. might be eating during I, that I, time. I so frankly, basically you're miserable yes. and you and, resent that. And frankly, I think it's slightly sexist. It's true. It's kind of Women like the whole cool are always girl criticized thing. for being salad eaters. Yeah. I'm uh, like, it's the one time I know I'm going to eat greens today. And as a woman, I can say I hate salads. So I love just them. bucking that stereotype yeah. right there. So let me eat my salad. And stop saying no worries unless you're actually apologizing for something. And this has been Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Thanks for listening to Game Plan. For more, you can find me on Twitter at RZ Greenfield. Our guest, Mary Norris, is at Mary Norris TNY. And I'm at Francesca today. See you next week. Half baked take about bananas. Bananas are so genetically engineered. Why do we still have to deal with this garbage booger thing? Oh, yeah, I hate that. That part. you can't get rid of and it never, it always ends up like somewhere on your desk. It's really gross.